Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. John Locke, Second Treatise of Government, Sections 87 through 94. Section 87. As I have shown, man was born with a right to perfect freedom and with an uncontrolled enjoyment of all the rights and privileges of the law of nature, equally with any other man or men in the world. So he has by nature a power not only to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and possessions, against harm from other men, but to judge and punish breaches of the law of nature by others, punishing in the manner he thinks the offense deserves, even punishing with death, crimes that he thinks are so dreadful as to deserve it. But no political society can exist or survive without having in itself the power to preserve the property, and therefore to punish the offenses, of all the members of that society. And so there can't be a political society except where every one of the members has given up this natural power, passing it into the hands of the community in all cases with all private judgments of every particular member of the society being excluded, the community comes to be the umpire. It acts in this role according to settled standing rules, impartially, the same to all parties, acting through men who have authority from the community to apply those rules. This umpire settles all the disputes that may arise between members of the society concerning any matter of right, and punishes offenses that any member has committed against the society, with penalties that the law has established. This makes it easy to tell who are and who aren't members of a political society. Those who are united into one body with a common established law and judiciary to appeal to, with authority to decide controversy and punish offenders, are in civil society with one another. Whereas those who have no such common appeal, I mean no such appeal here on earth, are still in the state of nature, each having to judge and to carry out the sentence because there isn't anyone else to do those things for him. Section 88. That's how it comes about that the commonwealth has the power of making laws, that is, the power to set down what punishments are appropriate for what crimes that members of the society commit, and the power of war and peace, that is, the power to punish any harm done to any of its members by anyone who isn't a member. All this being done for the preservation of the property of all the members of the society, as far as is possible, every man who has entered into civil society has thereby relinquished his power to punish offenses against the law of nature on the basis of his own private judgment, giving it to the legislature in all cases. And along with that, he has also given to the commonwealth a right to call on him to employ his force for the carrying out of its judgments, which are really his own judgments, for they are made by himself or by his representative. So we have the distinction between the legislative and executive powers of civil society. The former are used to judge by standing laws how far offenses committed within the commonwealth are to be punished. 
The latter are used to determine, by occasional judgments based on particular circumstances, how far harms from outside the commonwealth are to be vindicated. Each branch of a commonwealth's power can employ all the force of all its members when there is a need for it. Section 89. Thus, there is a political or civil society when and only when a number of men are united into one society in such a way that each of them forgoes his executive power of the law of nature, giving it over to the public. And this comes about wherever a number of men in the state of nature enter into society to make one people, one body politic, under one supreme government. A man can become a member of a commonwealth without being in on its creation, namely, when someone joins himself to a commonwealth that is already in existence. In doing this, he authorizes the society, that is, authorizes its legislature, to make laws for him as the public good of the society shall require. This takes men out of a state of nature into the state of a commonwealth by setting up a judge on earth with authority to settle all the controversies and redress the harms that are done to any member of the commonwealth. Any group of men who have no such decisive power to appeal to are still in the state of nature, no matter what other kind of association they have with one another. Section 90. This makes it evident that absolute monarchy, which some people regard as the only genuine government in the world, is actually inconsistent with civil society and so can't be a form of civil government at all. Consider what civil society is for. It is set up to avoid and remedy the drawbacks of the state of nature that inevitably follow from every man's being judge in his own case, by setting up a known authority to which every member of that society can appeal when he has been harmed or is involved in a dispute, an authority that everyone in the society ought to obey. So any people who don't have such an authority to appeal to for the settlement of their disputes are still in the state of nature. Thus. Every absolute monarch is in the state of nature with respect to those who are under his dominion. Section 91. For an absolute monarch is supposed to have both legislative and executive power in himself alone. So there is no judge or court of appeal that can fairly, impartially, and authoritatively make decisions that could provide relief and compensation for any harm that may be inflicted by the monarch or on his orders. So such a man, call him czar, or grand senior, or what you will, is as much in the state of nature with respect to his subjects as he is with respect to the rest of mankind. This is a special case of the state of nature, because between it and the ordinary state of nature, there is this difference, a woeful one for the subject, really, the slave, of an absolute monarch. In the ordinary state of nature, a man is free to judge what he has a right to, and to use the best of his power to maintain his rights. Whereas, in an absolute monarchy, when his property is invaded by the will of his monarch, 
he not only has no one to appeal to, but he isn't even free to judge what his rights are, or to defend them, as though he were a cat or a dog that can't think for itself. He is, in short, exposed to all the misery and inconveniences that a man can fear from someone who is in the unrestrained state of nature, and is also corrupted with flattery, and armed with power. Section 92. If you think that absolute power purifies men's blood, and corrects the baseness of human nature, read history, of this or any other age, and you'll be convinced of the contrary. A man who would have been insolent and injurious in the forests of America isn't likely to be much better on a throne. Possibly even worse. Because as an absolute monarch, he may have access to learning and religion that will justify everything he does to his subjects, and the power of arms to silence immediately all those who dare question his actions. For what the protection of absolute monarchy is, what kind of fathers of their countries it makes princes to be, and to what a degree of happiness and security it carries civil society, where this sort of government is grown to perfection, he that will look into the late relation of Ceylon may easily see. Section 93. In absolute monarchies, as well in other governments in the world, the subjects can appeal to the law and have judges to decide disputes and restrain violence among the subjects. Everyone thinks this to be necessary, and believes that anyone who threatens it should be thought a declared enemy to society and mankind. But does this come from a true love of mankind and society, and from the charity that we all owe to one another? There is reason to think that it doesn't. There is really no more to it than what any man who loves his own power profit, or greatness will naturally do to prevent fights among animals that labor and drudge purely for his pleasure and advantage, and so are taken care of, not out of any love the master has for them, but out of the love for himself, and for the profit they bring him. If we ask, what security, what fence do we have to protect us from the violence and oppression of this absolute ruler? The very question is found to be almost intolerable. They are ready to tell you that even to ask about safety from the monarch is an offense that deserves to be punished by death. Between subjects, they will grant there must be measures, laws, and judges to produce mutual peace and security. But the ruler ought to be absolute and is above all such considerations. Because he has power to do more hurt and wrong, it is right when he does it. To ask how you may be guarded from harm coming from the direction where the strongest hand is available to do it, is to use the voice of faction and rebellion, as if when men left the state of nature and entered into society, they agreed that all but one of them should be under the restraint of laws, and that one should keep all the liberty of the state of nature, increased by power and made licentious by impunity. This implies that men are so foolish that they would take care to avoid harms from polecats or foxes, but think it is safety to be eaten by lions. Section 94. But whatever may be soothingly said to confuse people's understandings, it doesn't stop men from feeling, 
and when they see that any man is outside the bounds of the civil society to which they belong, and that they have no appeal on earth against any harm he may do them, they are apt to think they are in the state of nature with respect to that man, and to take care as soon as possible to regain the safety and security in civil society, which was their only reason for entering into it in the first place. This holds for any such man, whatever his station in life, whether he is a monarch or a street sweeper. In the early stages of a commonwealth it may happen, this being something I shall discuss more fully later on, that one good and excellent man comes to be preeminent, his goodness and virtue causing the others to defer to him as to a kind of natural authority, so that by everyone's tacit consent he comes to be the chief arbitrator of their disputes, with no precautions taken against his abusing that power, except their confidence in his uprightness and wisdom. The story could unfold from there in the following way. The careless and unforeseeing innocence of the first years of society, which I have been describing, establish customs of deference to one individual. Some of the successors to the first preeminent man are much inferior to him, but the passage of time gives authority to customs, some say it makes them sacred, and so the custom of deference to one stays in place. Eventually the people find that, although the whole purpose of government is the preservation of property, their property is not safe under this government, and they conclude that the only way for them to be safe and without anxiety the only way for them to think they are in a civil society is for the legislative power to be given to a collective body of men, call it Senate, Parliament, or what you will. In this way, every single person, from the highest to the lowest, comes to be subject to the laws that he himself, as part of the legislature, has established. No one has authority to take himself outside the reach of a law once it has been made, nor can anyone by any claim of superiority plead exemption from the laws, so as to license offenses against it by himself or his dependents. No man in civil society can be exempted from its laws, for if any man can do what he thinks fit, and there is no appeal on earth for compensation or protection against any harm he may do, isn't he still perfectly in the state of nature? and so not a part or member of that civil society? The only way to avoid the answer yes is to say that the state of nature and civil society are one and the same thing. And I have never yet found anyone who is such an enthusiast for anarchy that he would affirm that. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>